Uh, my family and I are going to be on vacation for the next couple weeks. Pastor Steve's going to kind of be taking things through the next couple Sundays and keeping continuity with our series and all of that. Uh, our family's going to be visiting uh, our, our family out in California and road tripping, so pray for us because we'll be, you know, two kids and the dog in the car all the way to California and back uh, for the next couple weeks, but uh, it's going to be real fun. So anyway, if you have any uh, pastoral needs, reach out to uh, Pastor Steve and then the rest of the staff will take things on and all of that. So thank you for making that time available for us. I really am grateful. Other quick comment is a couple weeks ago on Memorial Day, um, I neglected to say something about Memorial Day during our service, and some of you um, I, I talked to afterwards know people personally who gave their lives in the service. And so we just want to say, of course, we're grateful, and we're grateful to be able to worship God freely um, in this country. And so just want to make sure that that is said. Okay, um, let's get started here in our uh, sermon, our, our, our time together in Matthew chapter 7. Well, let's start with a little bit of history, okay? Prior uh, to the gold rush in 19, or 1849, the city of San Francisco had less than 1,000 residents. Within one year, okay, if you've studied the gold rush in your history classes in high school, the population of San Francisco swelled to over 25,000 people, all treasure seekers, people coming from across the country to come find uh, the wealth in the mountains of California. Now, by the turn of the century, if you, like a generation later, there's 350,000 people in this swelling metropolis. Now, uh, some of you know, Sarah and I spent five years doing church planting in San Francisco, so we lived in the city there. We were doing some missionary work there, and we learned from the longtime residents of the city that the history of San Francisco is often marked by major earthquakes. People remember those moments when everything kind of gets turned upside down with a major earthquake. Now, the first of these earthquakes came at precisely 5.12 a.m. on April 18, 1906. It was a, a strong foreshock, uh, woke people up. There's 400,000 residents in the city. And, and, and f some 25 seconds after this initial uh, uh, shock, these violent shakings erupted. And, and there was a 296-mile stretch of the San Andreas Fault that ripped open. And some, the, the, the ground literally tore as the tectonic plates shifted, creating this gash in the earth many miles long. Now, it was 42 seconds that this 7.9 magnitude earthquake shook the city. And buildings cracked, and the streets buckled, and items flew off the walls. And when the shaking stopped, 80% of the city was destroyed by the earthquake and then the subsequent fires. 80%. So uh, after this, this destruction, uh, the 300,000 residents of the city were left homeless. And this is a picture you'll see here of people watching the city burn. Now, do you notice where they're sitting or where they're standing? Can you see the perspective here? They're on a hill. That's not an accident, okay? In, the city of San Francisco is built on seven hills. And what people noticed in the aftermath of this earthquake, and again, this is the first major earthquake of this city that was really nothing just a few decades before, it, it, what they noticed is that the shaking didn't affect all the neighborhoods in the same way. The houses that were built on the hills 
withstood the shaking better and escaped with minimal harm, whereas the ones built on the silt and sand in the valleys, they were absolutely devastated. Now, the United States Geological Survey, which was kind of formed after this, they did some reports later on about the 1906 earthquake, and this is what the report said about it. They said there was a clear correlation of intensity with underlying geologic conditions. So the soil, the foundation upon which these houses were built mattered. They said areas situated on the sediment-filled valleys sustained stronger shaking than the near nearby bedrock. And the strongest shaking occurred in areas that had been reclaimed from the San Francisco Bay. So they had filled them in with silt and then built houses on top on what used to be water. Those areas were leveled. Now, this is not only a, a, a geologic kind of fact that bedrock is more secure than sand. I think that that's pretty self-explanatory. But there were actually factors that led up to this and making it way worse. See, for over 50 years, I mentioned the gold rush. For over 50 years, miners in the Sierra Nevada mountains had been using hydraulic mining to blast away the mountains and, and reveal all of the gold. And what happens is in the mountains, all of that sediment's going down the mountain and filling into the bay and is creating a, a, a load, they say, of sediment on top of the San Andreas Fault itself. So over the course of 50 years, tons and tons and tons of of dirt is flowing down, and the USGS is saying that what happened is that it caused stress on the fault because you have decades of dirt piling on top of it, and that weight created the earthquake. Whoa! They didn't know that was going to happen when they started mining, right? It literally broke open the most destructive quake in California's history. So here, here's, here's where this connects on what we're going to talk about today. We're talking about what is spiritual growth. And our goal is to define how we grow in Christ-likeness now that we've come to know the gospel, trusting in the authority of the scriptures, thinking theologically. Spiritual growth is the natural outcome of our salvation. It's, it's the maturing processes of each of, as each of us is a disciple of Jesus Christ and as we follow him, as we're obedient to him. And there's two lessons that we're going to see in our passage today. And these lessons focus on and it's somewhat, it's connected to that illustration. It's focused on the builder and the building. You see, what we're going to learn today is that a house builder can be either wise or foolish, depending on your choice of where you build and what you build upon. See, each of us are, are building a house, if you will. Our lives are an edifice constructed to reflect what we value whom we worship, what matters most to us. And we can choose to patterns and choices that lead to life, or we can choose patterns and choices. We can erect a house, the house of your life, that leads to destruction. So you can be wise or foolish. Okay, that's the first. The second is that a house itself could be built either on rock or sand. And you'll see these two correlate, the wise and the foolish and the rock and the sand in our passage today. Because every house has a foundation. Our lives are built on some source of truth, some larger reality, some worldview or picture of what matters most. And the choices we make are either going to be built on a solid foundation or they're going to be built on a foundation that is cracked and flawed or so loose and crumbling that the house that we build will topple. 
So my favorite, just to close this illustration of the earthquake in 1906, my favorite picture from the 1906 earthquake is of a statue of a Harvard natural history scholar named Jean-Louis Rodolphe Agassiz. Okay, Agassiz was a, at the time in the late 1800s, a famous Darwinian biologist in the 1800s, and he lived a life built on a secular humanist pursuit of knowledge apart from God. And there was a statue of Agassiz on the top of one of the tallest buildings at Stanford University that fell and landed like this in the 1906 earthquake. <laughs> None of the rest of the buildings are destroyed. But here's a man who portrayed all that they had to offer of the worldview of the late 1800s of life apart from God. And he falls off the top of the building head first in the concrete. I love it. Now, you don't want this to be you, okay? Because you want the foundation to be solid, all right? So open with me to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. We're going to be looking at the final words of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And his Sermon on the Mount is the conclusion, or this passage we're going to look at is the conclusion of the whole sermon from chapters 5 to 7. And Jesus puts a fine point on his teaching about the kingdom of heaven. So let's read our passage together. If you need a Bible, by the way, raise your hand because we'd love to have you uh, see these words for yourself and follow along as I read them. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 24, and we're going to read through verse 29. This is Jesus summarizing at the end of his sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rains came down. The streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell with a great crash. And when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. All right, friends, since this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, here's how we're going to tackle this passage today. We're going to first go back and look at the main themes and lessons from the Sermon on the Mount. So we'll kind of skim a little bit of what's going on in chapters 5 through 7. And then we're going to focus on this conclusion and how Jesus drives home the importance of being a wise builder who builds your life on the solid foundation of Christ. So... Let's go back. So grab your Bible there and flip a couple pages over to the left, to the beginning of chapter 5. We're going to look at this sermon and, and kind of pull out some themes here. Now, our passage in verse 24 began with the word, therefore. And some of you heard me say this before. There's an old pastor that I knew when I was a kid who used to say, if you see a therefore, you need to ask what it's there for. It's an easy way to remember you got to go to the passages just before it and say, what in the world are we, are we talking about here? How, how have we gotten to this point? Now, if we go back to the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, you're going to see that Jesus wants to put his, he wants us to put his words into practice. So here's the structure of this sermon. If you're looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 16 are the introduction that explains who is blessed in the kingdom of heaven. 
And if you skim through this, you're going to see it's those who are poor in spirit, those who mourn over sin, those who are meek and humble, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who, who are merciful, who have a pure heart, who are peacemakers, who are persecuted on account of Christ. It's these people who are the salt and light because they've reflected the character of Jesus himself. You notice how all of those things characterize Jesus? We're to be like him. Now, this, Jesus then gives this summary thesis. So that's kind of verses 1 to 16. The summary thesis comes in verses 17 to 20 of chapter 5. And I just want you to see the central claim that Jesus gives here. He says in this paragraph that through Jesus, the law is being fulfilled. And through him, we can faithfully walk in obedience under his grace. Now remember, okay, as he says here, and if we were to read this paragraph, he's saying not a, not a bit of the law is going to pass away. I'm actually fulfilling it, and through me, your righteousness is going to surpass that of the Pharisees. Whew. Now we have to remember, we're free from earning God's favor because Christ paid the price for us. And so now, by the Spirit's power, we're given a new heart and be transformed to walk in the light of Christ's kingdom. Now, it's here where I want to stop and define some key terms. We've been doing this as we've been going through our series. What are some key terms we need to understand in order to um, kind of wrap our minds around a, a topic here? So when we talk about spiritual growth, we're talking about a theological word called sanctification. And if you've heard this word before, the word sanctification literally is the word sanctity or sanctify, which means holy or to be made holy. It's where we get the word sanctuary, a holy place. Now, there's two, two dimensions to this word sanctification that I want to draw out, and I'll, I'll show you some definitions here. The first one is positional sanctification. It's a technical term we use in theology, okay? It's the new status of being holy that is achieved and secured by Christ's atoning sacrifice received by faith. When you trust in Jesus Christ, you have been washed clean. Status. Your, God looks upon you with the holiness and purity of his son Jesus. Washed by his blood. It's a new position, a new status that you have, a new place that is received by faith and secure. And in other words, this is the pure and right status of holy in God's sight, by grace alone, through faith alone in Christ alone. It's what makes you eligible to be in God's holy presence. In 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, Paul puts it this way. After he talks about some sin that the Corinthians were in, he says, and that's what some of you were, but you were washed. You were sanctified, he says. And you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit's power. In other words, when you trust in Christ for your salvation, when you repent of your sin, this is a past tense reality. When you're forgiven, it's secured by, by God's grace. It's a gift that you have the holiness of Jesus, that you have been washed. The status does not depend on your effort, in other words, or your moral perfection. It depends on Christ alone. All right, so that's positional sanctification. The other one is progressive sanctification. And this is the ongoing process of transformation to Christ-likeness. Greater holiness, greater maturity. Not that perfection is possible, but that 
You see change in your life. That you, you, you sin, it becomes less. And obedience to God becomes more. That, that, that you see that, that, that this is the lifelong pursuit of spiritual growth. It's the wonderful path with all the ups and downs of growing in awe of God, growing in awareness of your sin, growing to learn to repent and forgive others, to bear with one another in love, to learn how to steward what God has entrusted to us, to love sacrificially, to rejoice in Christ alone, to practice being restful in his presence. All these wonderful things that we desire. Now, a related term to this that maybe is a little more um, in a sort of popular uh, vernacular is the term spiritual formation. And that's the process of transformation of the innermost dimension of the human heart, or the human being, the heart. When we talk about being formed spiritually, it's that shaping of what you desire, what you love. It's, it's the kind of popular term for progressive sanctification. It's the topic of what I want to talk about today. As we talk about being shaped, molded, and formed like Christ. Now, you see, here's, here's, here's where this applies in our text today. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount has to be understood with, within the larger context of Matthew's gospel. Because when we talk about growth as a Christian... We need to make sure that we're formed spiritually. We have, to, we have to remember a couple of really important things. Okay, the first one is that spiritual formation must be gospel-centered. Don't forget the fact that you aren't trying to earn God's favor when you're walking in obedience. Yes, we want to walk in obedience because he loves us and we want to love him in return. But your salvation is not at stake because you're saved and justified by Christ's work alone. And so we, we can be free from that tyranny of legalism when it talks about, when we talk about growth, that God has shown us such kindness that, that we want to love him and walk in the security of being a blood-bought child of God. So remember that when we talk about this today. Okay, the second thing to remember is that the motive power for your transformation is the spirit of God, not you. Listen to me carefully, friends. The power that is at work to do real heart transformation is not you. It's God working in and through you. Sanctification, you see, has two ditches we could fall into. Okay, on one side, you have um, sometimes the language kind of comes out like this. God helps those who help themselves. And on one side, this ditch over here, it could be like someone, okay, imagine, imagine if I said, hey, um, here's, what, here's what the spiritual life is like. It's like rowing across the Pacific Ocean. So grab your oars and start rowing as hard as you can. And what we imagine in this God helps those who help themselves kind of mentality is that Jesus is like your first mate. You're rowing as hard as you can and he's sitting next to you in the boat and he's going, good job, Brent, you're doing a great job, keep going. It's like saying God cheers on those who row as hard as they can. Depending on my strength, depending on my control of the direction of where I'm going, setting my course, my plans. Okay, that's the ditch on one side. The ditch on the other side is let go and let God. It's like throw the oars overboard. I don't need to, I don't need to do anything. God's got it. He's going to do everything. And so this, it's like someone who, who kicks their feet up and looks at Jesus next, you know, sitting next to you. And it's like, all right, do your miracle thing. Let's get across this ocean. You're in control anyway, right? Jesus, you're, why would I try and do anything? 
It's like saying, let's let go and float somewhere. Well, hopefully we're going to end up across on the other side. See, friends, on, on these, two, these two errors, the proper view of sanctification, of the holiness that God is, is, is growing within us and, and changing and transforming us, is that we cooperate with God's work in our lives, making ourselves available to desire and, and, and move towards God, that available to his spirit, pleading with him with intentionality. It's like, maybe in this metaphor, it's like raising a sail. That you realize that the, the power of what's going to move me across this vast the, uh, landscape that I, I can't make it across by myself. It's that I'm going to raise, the, the kind of classic metaphor for this, for sanctification, is raise your sail. And the Holy Spirit will blow upon his power. And he's going to direct you where he wants you to go. That the, the, it's an intentionality to open our hearts to God's work, to make ourselves available, to pursue him, to prepare ourselves by getting that sail up and ready to go, trusting in his promises, cooperating with his work in us. Now, I'll be honest, I love this metaphor, but it has some limitations. And here, here's one of them. The motive power and the will and direction, they come from God and, 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 and the thing is, the spirit of God working is not working from the outside like that wind on the sail. The Holy Spirit is working from within. That metaphor is like an, and the Holy Spirit, of course, is, yes, outside of us, but it, it, it's not that the Holy Spirit comes and kind of blows for a time and then goes away. See, I like to use a different word. It's the word impel. Some of you heard me say this word before talking about spiritual growth. If you know what an impeller is, it's any engineers out there who know what an impeller is? Okay, I see one hand, okay. <laughs> Great, I'm gonna teach you what an impeller is. So an impeller is an internal mechanism typically that creates fluid pressure as it spins. And it's a power that works within a machine. It's, it's it, compared to the, the idea of being compelled, which tends to, to be more associated with an outside force. To be impelled is a power that acts on us from the inside. And so instead of maybe that sail metaphor, God impels us from within by his spirit who dwells in you, the very presence of God in you. And so the, the, we surrender to and cooperate with God's impelling power by the Spirit. Now, how do we do this? This is where um, Jesus walks through the Sermon on the Mount and describes all of the ways that he wants us to walk in obedience to him. Because when we ask this, how, how does it look to raise our sails or be impelled by the Spirit of God? The first place to start, honestly, is with some basic spiritual disciplines, some ways that we pursue the Lord. And this is what Jesus sows into his Sermon on the Mount. So go back to the text here. If you look through the rest of chapter 5 and just kind of skim along with me and you go through chapter 6 and into chapter 7, you're going to see that Jesus combines ethical teachings with challenges to love others sacrificially and then a call to adopt habits and practices that cultivate, cultivate communion with God. And I just want to take a moment because there's so much we could talk about. We'll do a series on the Sermon on the Mount at some point. Uh, but I want to highlight one spiritual practice 
that I think is critical in laying the right foundation. And that's prayer. Jesus spends, he focuses in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount on the importance of prayer. And friends, I just want to say, do you realize what an incredible privilege we have in prayer? Because of the status you have, you've been justified, made right with God, and your status now is holy. You can be in his presence. Now there is no barrier between you and God. No mediator but Christ himself. You can commune with a holy God by simply talking to him. We take this so for granted. And friends, it is such a distinct privilege that we live on this side of the cross, the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. The curtain has been torn. We can be in his presence. And Jesus' call here on the Sermon on the Mount is to cultivate a life of daily prayer, of constant communion with God. And it's, it, it doesn't have to be these lofty and grand, uh, uh, eloquent prayers. He just wants you to have a habit of talking to God throughout the day. Remember, he's near. This is not a show. It's not a prideful thing or about drawing attention to yourself. It's about seeking closeness with God. And my prayer is that you would crave that, desire that, that you would be desperate for it, that you would come, become desperate for prayer precisely, friends, because you're desperate for God. So the challenge that Jesus gives here in the Sermon on the Mount, I want to give to you is seek him. Be desperate for him. Draw close to him. Don't worry about saying the wrong things, okay? God is your father. You're his child. How many times as a child have you fumbled around with not knowing what to say and your parent is like, it's okay. That's how your heavenly father looks upon you. He just wants his kids to talk to him, to be real with him, to even fumble around if you're not sure what to pray. See, friends, Jesus' central concern in the Sermon on the Mount is that you begin to, to, to live in and, and act in alignment with the kingdom of God. That's his theme. Not the kingdom of this world and the patterns that it will form you into, but the pattern of his kingdom that you grow in grace and maturity, that you take steps towards him in Christlikeness. Okay, so let's go back to the conclusion of the sermon now. So go back to our text for today, chapter 7, verse 24 and following. I want to spend a couple minutes talking about it because I want you to, to see how Jesus concludes his sermon as he leads up to this passage with a number of paired alternatives about the wise and foolish. So here's these paired alternatives. Go, to the, go back to the middle of chapter 7, starting in verse 13. If you skim along here, you're going to see that there's, he gives a, an illustration that there's two paths. There's the wide path and a narrow path. Then in the next paragraph, there's two trees. There's a bad tree and a good tree. One that produces bad fruit, one that produces good. And then the next paragraph, there's two claims. You don't know Jesus or you do know Jesus. That's verses 21 to 23. Then the last one is 24 to 27. There's two houses. One built on the sand or one built on the rock. Do you see the pattern that's coming here? You're either on the wide, bad, don't know Jesus, built on sand life. 
or you're on the narrow path that is the good tree that produces good fruit that knows Jesus and is built on the rock. He's repeating this on purpose, dear friends. See, uh, Don Carson, who's one of my favorite New Testament scholars and a professor of mine, this is what he wrote about this, this ending of the sermon. He says, and I want you to listen clearly to this, the Sermon on the Mount does not end with lofty thoughts of human goodness or naive hope in the inevitability of human progress. It offers two ways and two ways only. One leads to life, good fruit, entrance into the kingdom, and a firm foundation in the storm. The other ends in destruction, bad fruit and fire, exclusion from the kingdom, and ruin. And he says a person either walks the road that leads to life or he walks the road that leads to destruction. Friends, this is why Jesus' Sermon on the Mount was so radical, earth-shattering, and controversial at the time. Because Jesus makes crystal clear at the conclusion of this sermon how important it is that we live in light of the truth of the gospel. Friends, Think about this metaphor, all right? I love the metaphor of the houses. Um, we just recently um, did a, 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 a podcast on this, and I'll share a little bit more about that in a moment. But think about this metaphor. There may not be, if you look at a house, there may not be much on the outside of the external appearance that, that, that shows the difference between two houses. If you're walking and talking, you're going down into work, or you go to the coffee shop or whatever, you could look at two people's lives, and on the surface, they don't look a whole lot different. But underneath, the foundation may be completely different. And this is the key I want you to see in this text. The way you tell the difference between the houses is only when the storm comes. It's only when the house is tested that the security of the foundation is revealed. Now, why use a storm metaphor? Okay, we get storms here in, in the Midwest. I talked about earthquakes, maybe another way to, to talk about it. See, in the ancient world, the fury of nature was viewed with absolute utter fear. It was something beyond your control, something that you couldn't predict, something that you couldn't avoid. And the key to that metaphor is that survival, okay, if it's something you can't avoid, you know it's coming at some point, which is the reality of all of our lives. We've all faced difficulty or suffering or pain. The key to survival is preparation. Counting the cost, knowing wh where you start. That's something that you can be ready for if the foundation is right. Because that's the first thing that you do is lay the foundation. And then the house gets built on top. See, the idea of storm in the Bible usually has two different ways that the Bible talks about it. One is the trials and difficulties of life. Sometimes we describe it in that way. I'm going through a really challenging time right now, and it's like this storm that is raging. And so we have to ask ourselves, how are we prepared? Are we ready for when that's going to come? Are we going to trust in Christ or ourselves? Okay, the other way that the scripture talks about storms is God's judgment, especially final judgment. The Bible describes in the Old Testament especially how storms sometimes served as this symbol of God's judgment. And, and the question is, are you ready for that? Are you, are you prepared that at the end you're going to stand before God and he's going to say, let's look at what's happened here in your life. Are you trusting in Christ's sacrifice on your behalf? I'm with Jesus. <laughs> That's what's going to be my cry. 
or are you going to plead your case based on your own merit? That's testing the foundation. See, friends, you cannot compromise the foundation. You can't cut corners when establishing what your life is built upon. I mentioned the podcast. Stephen, um, who's here this morning, we got a chance to talk through that podcast, and we talked about a story that he told that I'm going to share this morning that I hope I get right. Um, he was describing how there was a, a house tour that uh, was happening in, in Southern California, in this big, beautiful house, and this group of, uh, is going through with the tour guide, and they're describing how, what's that? Okay, it was a museum. Okay, so there's this large building, and it's, the, the tour guide is waxing eloquent about how this building is defying the laws of architecture and physics. And look at how incredible it is, and it looks like it shouldn't be able to do this. And, and it was this, this whole thing about how it's so unique in and, and breaking all these rules. And one of the people in the tour group said, did they break rules when they laid the foundation? <laughs> and the tour guide is sort of, uh, I, 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 I don't know. And, and, and the point was, friends, the point was so clear. The lesson is so simple. <laughs> of course, the architect could not cut corners at the foundation, because if he did, that whole building would topple. You see, friends, it, uh, the alternative worldviews, uh, innovative sexualities, new and progressive visions of morality or self-centeredness, whatever things we're thinking in our own wisdom, we can come up with new ways. We don't need God anymore. They are built on a foundation of sand, not the solid bedrock that God's revealed. And his truth, his design, because he made us with purpose, a design that is good and beautiful for our wholeness and flourishing. See, you wonder why societal, sort of the indicators of societal health are staggeringly bad. Rampant loneliness, anxiety is growing, substance abuse destroying people, pornography is pervasive. What's happened is the, the foundation is eroding. Foundation has been swapped for a different one. And we need to go back to the roots to dig deeper, go beneath the surface to the structure underneath the structure. We need a different foundation. We need Jesus himself. Now, why does Jesus issue such a strong warning here? Why does he, he, he conclude his Sermon on the Mount in this way? We looked at those contrasts. You're either on one side or the other. You only have two options, life or death. Why be so bold? Why so frighteningly straightforward about the path that leads to life and the path that leads to destruction. Friends, it's because of this. Because there, this illuminates the urgency about heaven and hell. Jesus looks at these people and says, you don't have forever. It's this option or this option. Listen to what I'm saying. And we, friends, should feel that same sense of urgency in our own lives and when we think about the people in our lives that don't know Jesus. See, if your house were in the path, let me give this like, final illustration here. If your house was in the path of rising floodwaters, and you were sleeping soundly, unaware, and I came pounding on your door to wake you up to the imminent danger, you'd have a choice at that moment. First of all, I'd, I would imagine that you would hopefully be thankful that someone pounded on the door so that you weren't destroyed. That's the sense of urgency we need to feel in evangelism. But you have a choice at that moment. Just like you have a choice in this life. Maybe you love your house so much. 
Maybe you love the life you've built in this world or the accolades of others or the pleasures of life, the myriad of ways that you can find solace temporarily in money or substances or material things or you might refuse to leave the house because you love the kingdom you've built. Or maybe you don't believe that the storm's coming. Someone's pounding on the door and you say, I read the weather report, it's not happening. You might choose to live in willful ignorance of it. Out of pride in your own wisdom and understanding, you say, you don't understand what's actually happening to that person who's knocking on the door. And you might ignore the warnings because instead of, instead of heeding the reality that God is judge, you've made yourself judge. This is what Jesus, dear friends, is challenging us with. You can either be wise or foolish. You can either build on the rock or build on the sand. The patterns and choices that you make are either going to be built on the solid foundation of Christ and his kingdom or on the shifting sands of the popular culture and the hollow promises of this world and your own self-confidence. But I'll tell you, the storm will test your life. And ultimately, the judgment at the end will reveal your foundation. And the question, and we talk about spiritual growth, the question ultimately is, will you surrender your whole life to Jesus to build your life on the only secure foundation, which is the cross of Christ and his salvation? That's the question. Let's take a moment and pray. And then we'll talk about it. Lord, we come to you in desperate need. Um, we, we desire that impelling power, the Holy Spirit in us, that as you indwell us when we trust you by faith, that we don't want to live with that sandy foundation and that way that leads to, to death and destruction, Lord, but we know that when we cross over from death to life, that we now have a new foundation is Christ. Help us, Lord, by your Spirit's power to construct a house on that, the, the, the life we live that is honoring, glorifying to you, that can withstand the storm because you, in your power and your work, have built a, a, a life in us, a, a life of obedience and, and to you and to, to faithfulness, to be nearness to you in prayer, Lord, that you would strengthen us as you sanctify us day by day. Lord, I pray that for each person in this room that you would help us to grow in Christ-likeness. In desperation for you, Lord God. In Jesus' name, amen.